So you've been wondering where my leadership would take us. Uh, taking a new direction with small groups. <laughs> we talked back in November that we think um, all the way back to Acts and uh, how the church should be today is that we gather to worship. Um, we gather and we sit and we look forward specifically at an empty cross. And we say, that is who we worship, that is who we submit our lives to, who we've been forgiven by. Um, we also think that we need to get into smaller community. And uh, specifically, small groups where we're sitting in circles, getting into the opposite of what you just saw. But we're getting into the Word. We're praying together. Uh, there's fellowship. We perhaps even break bread and, and have a meal together. And then we serve. We serve in our city, in our church, in our city, and in our world. And uh, my belief with every fiber of who I am is that when we commit to that together, um, God's going to do some amazing things uh, that when we get serious about those things. So uh, in your bulletin is a handout with some new small groups. And let me say a couple of things about them. They will start towards the end of January. They'll go through June. And the reason we do that is uh, research says that it takes the average person in a church three or five, three to five times until they find the small group they're going to stick with. And uh, that seasonal small group gives you a chance to get into a group to find out what it's like and see if maybe that's the group of people that you're going to do life with on a long-term basis. And um, it'll meet at least twice a month. Uh, the information is the bulletin. We encourage you to sign up. It'll be an absolute blast. If you have not done small groups and you're sitting there frightened, I get it. I, I am that person. I'm there with you. Um, I just encourage you, give it a try. Uh, I think you'll find it to be a, an absolute blessing on your life. Um, <clears throat> before we get into our, our new series, we're going to do a series uh, called Why. We're going to talk about the two sacraments that we, uh, we partake in, baptism and communion. Um, but before we do that, let me, uh, I was thinking, um, uh, I, I was up preaching in the Church of Open Door last week and Mikey was here and did, did a great job, but a um, lot of conversations and, and uh, up there and down here. The holiday season is a time where people have a lot of hurt, um, a lot of pain. It seems like there's always more death during the season. I, I had a horrible death in our family this last week. A cousin's husband passed away unexpectedly. Um, we had three connected to the church this week. Uh, this is a season where for some it was really, really good. We say, how was your Christmas? And when you're at church, what do you say? Oh, good. It was great. The reality is for a lot of you, it stunk. It wasn't fun. It was painful. And uh, that's what we bring to church. And we want Crossview to be a place where we can be honest and authentic. Um, so I am going to open us in prayer and ask for you just to put all of that before God and ask God to speak to us. Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you, you would take who we are and our beauty and brokenness. You would take our stories, what we bring here this morning. And as we talk about communion, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, your meal, God, I pray that you would speak words of life and hope that draw us to you and change us as your followers in the world around us. I pray this in your name. And all God's people said? So as we jump in this series, I've got to give you a little background as to why we're doing a two-week series on sacraments. One is we never talk about them. We usually just do them, Right? If someone asked you, what is communion or what is baptism, uh, you, you probably wouldn't remember the last time you heard a message or teaching about it. So there's that. The other part for me is um, I did not grow up in the covenant tradition. Who grew up in the evangelical covenant tradition? 
Raise your hand. So, so there's a, a small few in here. And uh, what we want to say is we are not, as, as an evangelical covenant church, we're not saying we're the best and this is the greatest place to be. We believe in the whole body of Christ and we are, we are a small part of it. Um, but what I believe and, and the reason that I am drawn to this tradition uh, is important to me. I, I grew up fundamental Baptist. So those of you who grew up really conservative Baptist, I was two steps to the right of you. Um, out of seminary, I planted a non-denominational church, did that for about nine years, and then I came back to Minnesota, married a Minnesota girl, come back to Minnesota, and spent uh, the last seven years before coming here in an evangelical mainline Presbyterian church. So other than the Catholic side of the Christian tradition, I, I'm pretty well immersed in the Christian tradition, and uh, before conversations ever started here, the covenant denomination was a place that I thought was absolutely beautiful. Um, for a lot of reasons, but there's two key words that, that stick with me when I think of the covenant tradition, uh, covenant theology, and why I'm drawn to it. One is, uh, it has the posture of humility. Um, in a time where it seems like people on the way far right and people on the way far left get the loudest voices, um, I think those with the posture of humility in the middle, like the covenant tradition, where we say there's a centered set of what we believe that's really important. There, there, there's this small sort of, sort of thing in the middle that we believe in. It's Jesus. It's, it's a, a, a relationship with Christ. It's the authority of the word, some of these things. But beyond that, we hold a posture of humility, like 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, we see through a glass darkly. We don't have it all figured out. We, we're going to say what we believe on some things, but we're going to hold it with a posture of humility, which I think is so important, so important. The other reason that I'm drawn to it is unity. Um, John 17, for me, is one of the most critical passages in the Bible where Jesus is talking to his followers right before he's going to go to the cross, praying for them. And he says, I pray that you will be one as we, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one so that the world would know and see. Our greatest witness is not, not being the same. We don't have to be the same. In fact, I think all the different traditions in Christendom, there's some beauty to that. Our greatest witness is our unity. That in spite of our differences, we can come together around Jesus Christ and we can be a witness to the world that there is a living God who loves and comes and wants to redeem us. Amen? So with that said, back to the question. Why, why a series on sacraments? Here's a, a simple definition of what a sacrament is. Sacrament is a visible form of grace. Um, in seminary, they often said a sacrament is an earthly sign of a heavenly reality. It's something we do here that we can touch and taste and maybe even feel and see that gives us a lens, a glimpse into a heavenly reality. And uh, in Christendom, it's around grace. That sacraments remind point. There's some in the whole spectrum of Christianity, there's some that say that the sacraments actually give grace. In our tradition, they, we say they remind us about grace. Remind us of what God in Jesus Christ has done. So this week, I'm going to talk about communion. Then next week, Chris is going to talk about baptism. Baptism, I think, is one of the greatest. Um, in the covenant tradition, it is one of the most beautiful things that we would choose to baptize infants, baptize adults, and, bapt and dedicate infants. Because we want to say that issue has divided the body of Christ for centuries and we will not let it divide the body of Christ. 
Um, so with all that said, let's jump in. We're going to walk through two key, key passages around uh, the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, if you have your Bibles, then we're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians 11 and try and give an overview of what the Lord's Supper is. And then at the end, we'll uh, take about five takeaways uh, that I hope you will take with you. So Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. It's no coincidence that the Last Supper, which this story is, is around the Jewish uh, festival of Passover. And Passover, if, if you've not sort of grown up in church, Passover points back in the Old Testament to the story of God's people when they were in captivity in Egypt. And as God frees them, these ten plagues happen. And the last one, God tells his people, take the blood of a lamb and you put it around the door and when the angel comes to kill the firstborn, he will pass over those who have the blood on the gate. And now it's, there, there's a lot to this story that I, that I think as 21st century people, it's like, wow, that's weird. I don't get it. And I, I don't either. But for a faithful Jew, they celebrated that there was a God who not only passed, passed over and delivered them from death, but also delivered them from Egypt. And the meal we're going to talk about this morning points back to that celebration when Jesus passed over and ultimately passes over um, God passes over in Jesus Christ verse 14 when the hour came Jesus' apostles reclined at the table and he said to them I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer he's going to get into some cryptic sort of saying here's the sayings that we don't have all the time for for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, and that's so key, that, that's what we call the words of institution. We're going to see the exact same language in 1 Corinthians 11, that after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it again, the words, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And once again, we, we, in the Christian spectrum, when it comes to the Lord's summer, Supper, when it comes to communion, when it comes to the Eucharist, there are some who believe on, on the spectrum, who believe that when we take it, it becomes the body and blood of Christ in us. We believe, based on this remembrance language, that it's symbolic. That it doesn't become, but we're remembering. And in the remembering, God does something in us. Verse 20 says this. In the same way, after he took, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And this is, the, you know, this right before he's going to walk to the cross. It's a great story. Jesus is serving a meal to his disciples, both remembering the Passover and pointing to his de impending death. And right after this, if you read further on in the passage, what do the disciples do? They decide to argue about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. So right after Jesus has served him, they're like, ah, okay, who, who's going to be the best? Which I think at the end of the day reminds us of our brokenness. That the meal that this reminds us of and the meal it points towards reminds us that we are broken people in need of it. If we were to walk through the book of Acts, uh, most would say that in the book of Acts, the early church took this meal constantly. Some would even say daily, if you see, look at Acts 2, verses 46 and 47, that every time they gathered, maybe as part of a large, larger meal, that they would take this meal because they needed to consistently think about what Jesus had done for them. 
There are traditions where they take communion weekly. The last two churches I've been part of, we took communion weekly. Um, and it never got old. Reminding ourselves once a week of what Jesus had done, of remembering and thinking about that in its beauty and fullness, I think is an amazing, amazing gift. So now jump down to 1 Corinthians. The early church is practicing it, not surprising because if we were there in the first century, we would already be messing it up as well. We come to 1 Corinthians 11, passage we use for the words of institution, and uh, I want to talk about the story. Because I think the story here will point towards and remind us of what we're supposed to do when it comes to communion. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen says this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Uh, it's intriguing. Paul in the early church had very much a parent-child relationship that when he had something he had to say, he was just going to say it. He wasn't going to mince words. And they are practicing the Lord's Supper already just a couple of decades into it in ways that are offensive. Paul says, for your meetings do more harm than good. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. If you were to look through the letters of Paul to the early churches, the number one theme, and listen to this, the number one theme in those letters is the unity of the body of Christ. And it, put, it points back to John 17. In our unity, we are the best witness we can be. Doesn't mean sameness. Doesn't mean we get along all the time. But we are unified around the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. No doubt there have, uh, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper. You eat strong language. They think they're doing what they're supposed to. And Paul says, eh, you think you're taking the meal. You're not taking the meal. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. So here's the context of the first century. Most historians would say. So in the first century, they didn't have church buildings like this. Historians say that Christian church buildings probably started in the third century. The first few centuries, they met in houses. And what would happen is that they would usually meet at a wealthier person's house because usually a wealthier person's house was larger, right? So these little communities of 100 to 150 people would meet and most of their gatherings would revolve around a meal that included stopping moments where you remembered what Jesus has done, the bread broken and the wine that was drunk. And why Paul is upset is that here in Corinth, the rich people were getting there early. And the rich people were making a great meal and they were eating it up and they were drinking the wine. They were having a great time. And what was happening is that by the time the poor people got there, all that was left were the scraps. And what Paul is saying is that is detestable. That, that is so against what this meal is about that some of you are sick and some of you are actually dying. We're going to look at that in a second. I mean, it's some, some very, very strong language here. So he says in verse 22, with that, with that is the backstory to it. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not on this matter. And then verses 23 through 26 are the words of institution. That... Each time we take this meal, we say these words because it reminds us 
of when Jesus instituted, started this meal. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whatever, whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to come back to that in a couple of minutes, that line at the end. So now Paul comes back to his admonishment in verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Strong language. Everyone ought to examine. We try each time that we take the Lord's Supper to have a moment to look inside. This word examine means to test, to examine, to prove, to scrutinize. To really look on the inside of what's going on in your life and say, can I take this? It doesn't mean you're perfect, but can I take this with a clean heart? What does my relationship with God look like? What does my relationship with my brothers and sisters in this room look like? It's intentionality. Examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. We don't like talking about judgment and God. God doesn't judge, right? No. There's judgment going on here that is from God. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, literally died. This is that important to God. This meal tells such a big story that when we abuse it, we should take notice. And God does here at this community. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. Verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, whether you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Another key part of this, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Two big passages. There's a lot going on. That was a lot to read through. But what I want to do at the end is we walk towards the table that is in front of us is give you five takeaways that um, I hope you write down and think about. And as we take this meal on a consistent basis, that these will help you take it in meaningful ways. So it revolves around this idea of remembering. We saw it, I think, four times in both these uh, passages. That this meal reminds us of something. That there is an act in remembering uh, that is spiritual. That marks a moment and points us towards something that we need to think about. We need to recollect. That would be another way to translate this. So the first one is this. When we take this meal, we remember God's grace and our brokenness. That the broken body and the blood shed was for a reason. That we gather not only as people made in the image of God, but people that have and continue to act against the will of God. And we need a consistent reminder that says, not only are we broken, not only are we weak and frail, not only are we sinful, but there's a God who's forgiven us. And the broken body and the shed blood remind us of what God on the cross in Jesus Christ has done to forgive us of our sins. And thus we examine ourselves. 
we take time to look inside. So remember God's grace and our brokenness. Number two is this. This is such a beautiful part of it. Remember a meal that includes, not excludes. Remember a meal that includes, not excludes. You think about Jesus and meals, and Jesus um, tended to include those who were normally excluded, right? He ate with sinners. He hung out with the people that he wasn't supposed to hang out with. It's intriguing. When we have dinner parties, when my girls will be putting together a sleepover list, it's not only about who we're going to include, it's also about who we have to exclude. And this meal, especially the First Corinthians passage and the way Jesus did meals, reminds us that this is a table for all. It's not just for the rich. It's not just for the poor. It's not for a certain ethnic group. It's not for the people who think they have it all together or the people that don't. This is a meal for all who confess Jesus Christ. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to uh, pretend to be the best Christian. This is a meal for kids. It's a meal for adults. It's a meal for anybody who has put their faith and trust in the Jesus whose body was broken and blood was shed. It reminds us that the table of God looks a little different than ours. It reminds us that maybe the way we practice eating should look a little different. It's a meal that includes, not excludes. And I think it's important, before we jump to the next one, to also say it's not just for, for covenanters. It's not just for Catholics. It's not just for Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Church of Christ. We could go on and on, couldn't we? There's a lot of denominations. It's a meal for all. For all who profess Jesus Christ. Third one is this. We also remember our new family. For some of you, this, this doesn't take on quite the meaning that it does for others, but often for those who come from a place where maybe you didn't have parents or maybe your family is, is pretty messed up, becoming part of the family of God is an absolutely beautiful thing. That when God and Jesus Christ adopted you as one of his child through the blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. It is an absolute beautiful thing, and we take it together. That was at the end of the uh, First Corinthians passage, that we take it when we're all together. In the Presbyterian tradition I just came from, we could only take communion, unless otherwise approved by the elders, we could only take communion at all gathering worship settings. Because it reminds us that we all take it, that we are the family of God. There's no one better than any other person in this room. That we, as a family, come around this table and we take it together. And it's best. It's best. When it's the diversity of the body of Christ taking it together. Third thing is this. And this, this might be my favorite. Is that in this meal, around this table, we remember the whole of God's story. We remember the whole of God's story. You think of the Luke passage, it points back to Passover. It points back to how God had been faithful to his people in the Old Testament. And at the end of the words of institution, 1 Corinthians 11, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. It points forward to something. Like the story doesn't stop right here. It's not just about the death of Jesus Christ. There's a fulfillment. 
there's something more to this story. It's intriguing. This meal here actually points to the ultimate wedding feast. What's well, funny, I, and, I, and I get this, and it's probably good at times, but uh, we tend to take communion, the Lord's Supper, pretty seriously, right? I mean, as soon as it's time, let's, let's have the music go a little more chill. Let's put on the serious face. I mean, this is communion. It is serious. And there's parts to that that I get. But the meal that this points towards is an ultimate party. When God comes back to make things right, there is a time that's going to be called the ultimate wedding feast between the bride and the bridegroom, between Jesus and the church. When we have a meal that this is representative of, that points towards, that will not be quiet. It will be loud. It will be a party. It will be an ultimate celebration of when things are fully right. And so you know what? There's times where we may want this meal to feel a little bit that way. To remind us that this is not it. In a season when there's a lot of pain and brokenness and death, we need this meal to not only let us examine ourselves and our sinfulness, but also we need this meal to say, it's not all. That there is a living God that will come back to make all things right. We badly, badly need that. And then the last one is this. Um, we remember that God's grace is enough. Maybe the most important part of this meal. Have you ever had a meal where you get done and you want more? One of my, my favorite uh, getaways is to drive through the drive through of Taco Bell. No judging. Um, and sometimes I will order the, the value meal that is the three soft shells and a Diet Coke. And without exception, I get home and I'm hungry. I should have doubled it up. I needed six soft shells. And you've done the same thing. I know you have. But you know the feeling when you've had a meal that doesn't satisfy. And friends, please, please know this. No matter where you are this morning, you may be at church for the first time and you've been disappointed in the church. You've been disappointed in God. You may be here for the millionth time, it feels like. The grace of God in Jesus Christ that is the one that came and lived, that died for our sins, who rose again. It is enough for everyone in here. It's enough for every sin that you've committed, every sin that you don't want anybody to know about. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is enough. It's enough for you. It's enough for me. And every time you take this meal, and please know this, because I know there's people in this room where you look good on the outside and the shame on the inside is killing you. Every time you touch the bread and you dip it into the cup, the broken body of Jesus Christ, the blood shed, says to you, it's enough. You need nothing more than that. Amen? Jesus Lord, as we gather around the table, we do it as your family. And as one part of your family, God, we think of brothers and sisters in our city and around the world who gather around the same table. And so, Lord, we remember, we examine, but we also celebrate. 
that your grace and your love, your broken body and your shed blood is enough for all. So friends, take a couple of moments to look on the inside and examine your relationship with God and those around you.